Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. My name is Eric Wright, and I'm going to be your host. I think I'm your host every time. It's my podcast. But hey, actually, this is your podcast. I've got a fantastic conversation with Rahul Sidhu, who's the co-founder and CEO of Spider Tech. We talk a lot about uh, very interesting and, and challenging topics uh, around the idea of you know how we can get bring digital experiences into policing and community it's actually really fantastic he's doing a, a really cool thing with what they're doing at spider tech uh has a background in policing so we talk about some of the challenges that are going on in the world around this uh, so big thanks to rahul for for sharing some thoughts and his own story and, and how we're you know through spider tech solving things in, a, in an amazing way that being said, I also got to make sure I give a big shout out to the folks that make this podcast happen. So when you think about everything you need for your data protection needs, it's easy. You just got to go to one place, and that is vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Write it down, click now, do whatever you need to do. Go to Veeam Software. The folks at Veeam have been incredible, both on the platform side as well as on the people side. They've got a fantastic team, a fantastic product, and they're really, really doing great stuff to make sure they've covered you, like I said, everything you need for your data protection needs, whether it's virtualization, bare metal, cloud backups, cloud native. Uh, we've also not just backup and restore, but think about continuous business continuity and disaster recovery. That's the Veeam Disaster Recovery Orchestrator. Having got a couple of decades of doing this stuff, I sure wish that I had been when I was running my DR organization. All right, next up, I got to give a shout out, of course, to the amazing team at Samcart. Uh, they're not sponsors, but they are doing something really cool. I'm a big fan of the platform, uh, and the reason why I am is because they've been the reason that I can share a Velocity Closing. This is a, a place that you can go if you want to be able to better connect with people and how to demo your platforms and softwares and services and whatever it is, how to make sure you can really attach to what people need and just give them something they want. Learn about them. Better connect is for technical sellers, for product marketers, product managers, or even just traditional digital marketers. So you go and you go to velocityclosing.com and you can download today for only five bucks. Seriously, it's five bucks. It's less than the cost of a latte. It's the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. How's that for a title? I was very specific. You get the ebook, you get the audiobook, plus you get 12 one-hour coaching sessions. No, seriously, it's five bucks for all the stuff. So you really are losing if you don't get it. So jump on in, uh, go to velocityclosing.com. I'm so proud of the feedback that I just dropped the price because I want to make it accessible to more people. I want to bring more people into the industry. Let's do it together. Go to velocityclosing.com. And of course, while you're there, make sure that you come on in for a fresh set of devilishly good coffee. And all you got to do is go over to diabolicalcoffee.com you can get yourself a nifty little devilish discount uh, if you go to type in Disco Posse in the uh, checkout. So do it. Do it. Seriously, do it. Uh, Diabolical Coffee, uh, you can get freshly roasted beans sent to your door. They're roasted when you order. Also, the most amazing, diabolically awesome swag that's in the marketplace today. So go check it out. Use Disco Posse at the, at the checkout. All right. This is Rahul Sidhu. It was a really great conversation. I really appreciate him spending the time with us. I hope you enjoy the show and check out Spider Tech. This is Rahul Sadu, CEO of Spider Tech, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. thank you very much uh this is it's an interesting thing every once in a while you get a, a guest opportunity that is close to home and definitely i've got a hit family history and and a real respect for for folks that are that are in any of the public services police fire you literally cover check boxes on every one of those uh and at the same time of course you are a founder of a of a software company, and 
So check, check, check. This is going to be the best episode in a long time because we can literally cover a lot of stuff that, that I really have a lot of, you know, love and respect for. So thanks for joining. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess for the folks that are brand new to you, the best thing to do, if you want to just introduce yourself and then we'll talk about spider tech and, uh, and then we'll kind of work outwards from there. Yeah. Look, uh, short intro. Uh, my name is Rahul Sidhu. I'm the CEO, co-founder of spider tech. Uh, my background's been in both technology and public safety. I uh, spent the last 11 years in public safety working as an EMT, paramedic, crew chief, uh, you know, police officer, um, variety of assignments in, in, in all those careers um, and started Spider Tech in 2015. And I still serve as a reserve police officer uh, here in the Los Angeles County area. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting thing that you know, the move to, I'll say the the in service of others uh, and it's not only in service of others, but in service of others in the line of fire and is sort of affronted by danger. It's a really interesting choice that when people choose to get into police, military, anything like that, I'm always curious what drew you to the, at the beginning, if you don't mind, we're actually going to go sort of back to the roots to sure. begin with and, and how you got into, into that side of the world. Yeah, you know, um, I, I'd say the earliest influence I can I can point towards my my at least my mom's side of the family is very military driven, um, and they're you know I'm I'm an Indian guy, so these my mom's Indian and and uh, my mom's uh, father was in the Indian Army, my mom's brothers in the Indian Army, um, and uh, you know they just she was raised in that kind of environment, and I think some of it as as silly as it sounds sometimes it might be a little genetic in terms of what draws you you know maybe you're you're you have a family of artists and you become a you know an artist or you have family yeah. and people in service you you become that or you know you're really good at math and whatever ends up happening that's somehow passed down from your ancestors i think that probably has something to do with it um and then i just grew up in an environment where you know like not just family but my friends uh some of my closest friends ended up joining the military uh after high school um and for me my mom, having seen her her father, who um, you know, my grandfather passed away, uh, it was in the military. My cousin, uh, unfortunately, he was in the U.S. Army, and he uh, he he died in combat as well. Um, and so my mom wasn't really keen on on having me go down the military route, and uh, I still wanted to get into service. So I um, I became an EMT and a paramedic, and eventually a police officer. Um, and you know, I think in, in this environment, military police, uh, you know, fire EMS, and even like folks that work in the ER, your doctors and nurses in the ER, like everybody, there's this sh common thread amongst this group of people, of people who have gone out there and dealt with some of the harsher realities of the world and, and yeah. have experienced it so much that it's kind of shaped the way they view things sometimes in a good way, sometimes not in a good way. Um, and, uh, and there's like this kinship there amongst, uh, these groups of people. And I've always just kind of felt home there. Yeah. It's, and it's, and there's no real sort of profile to what draws you towards it. There's obviously like you said, you know, when it's in the family, it tends to be in some wonder if it's just in the DNA or obviously just there's nature and nurture. There's a combination of both things, the surroundings, the, you know, we just talk about it as every day as we hear it as kids. And so you grow up and it seems normal to, to you know, get into that, that sort of thing. But it's often mm -hmm. too, that, you know, it's a, one of the, one of the favorite cases people always come up to like, you know, the guy from Van Halen's uh, EMT and, you know, Hollywood, and you're like, yeah, well, that's, he just so happens to be, you know, a lead singer of a, of a relatively uh, popular band. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> in his heart, it was like, I, I want to, I want to serve, you know, I want to, and, and so he's always done this thing. And so it's, sometimes it's seen as a gimmick when people do it. You're like, no, like that's, that's in their heart. The other thing they may be known for, you know, I picked that example. There's many, right. Of, you know, people don't realize you just see somebody on the street, you know, they, they maybe just got off of a, of a long shift and, and who knows, you know, like I said, it's, and it can really shape you as you're in it. You know, it's not, no one gets in it because it's an easy out. You know, no one gets into mm -hmm. the military or into police, fire service, EMT, because they're like, oh, this is great. Good way to start ticking off the calendar until I get to retirement. No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, 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 I'll I, say that, you know, all 
there's it's such a spectrum like service public service at least in any capacity is a spectrum we mentioned a couple of them fire police uh you know ems and military um there are other ways uh to, to serve the public there you know whether you're working you know for the city government um you have elected officials you know you have a, a variety of other ways to do it i think service generally speaking is one of those things that a lot of people it's it's a lot of people want to find a way to give back and it depends on what they've got going on in their lives, what causes are important to them. Um, but it's a fulfilling thing. The older you get, the more you feel fulfilled by giving back in some capacity. I think that some people think um, that folks who get into like fire, EMS and police, they really love the adrenaline of it. And they love the, uh, you know, like that's, they like giving back in that fashion. And they're probably entirely true. I mean, don't get me right. I think that's, that's right. That's at least to a certain extent. But I also think there's simplicity in it in, in going down that road because there's, it's like a very simple concept of like, how do I help somebody? Well, if you're in fire EMS or police, you're going to help somebody like, you know, they need help. When I, when somebody's calling 911 and saying, help me, it could be the, the most they've ever needed help in their life. There's something inherently and beautifully simple about being there for that particular person in their moment of need. Um, and then other aspects of service that can be equally as uh, you know compelling and, and fulfilling might not be as simple. So sometimes I just think I'm just a simple guy, and I like yeah. to be there. You know, if if like that's the kind of thing that someone needs me to do. Sure, different than a startup where you now are you're you're phoning people saying, "Hey, do you need nine one one?" Yeah, very different. It's very much on the other side of it. Now, now this is the interesting thing, you know. The most successful startups are generally, or products, especially product-led startups, are founded on the idea that you experienced a problem mm. that you needed to solve, and you find a an addressable market of others who also share this problem. And it's interesting, like I said, as a kid, I I was involved, and I say, I mean, I was 15 years old. I used to do data entry for a police station. And then I ended up getting into, I stayed with them. I did database development, you know, for like three years. And then I ended up teaching them like adult education on how to use computers because I had to leave. And, you know, so I basically offloaded my knowledge on them. And it was interesting that at the end of that, all I thought to myself was, like the system that we've got in Canada is called CPIC, right? It was the uh, the RCMP version of, you know, that's that back end. And then they have their local database of stuff. I'm like, It'd be kind of neat to actually build this because every every single region needs it. And I mean, about at the time I'm a kid, I didn't know any better. I, I didn't didn't have the gumption to take that on. So let's talk about spider tech and actually the specific problems you solved and, and how you decided to to bring this product to the market. Yeah, I mean, well, to start, you you kind of you keyed in on what I think is an important aspect here of, of any early stage company, or at least for early stage investors, and that's founder market fit. You know, people talk about product market fit, but founder market fit in the beginning, um, I've learned is is something that is like a, typically a really true indicator of success for first time CEOs. Um, and I'm not talking about just me specifically. I, I mean, I, I, ever since we started six years ago, I've been working with a lot of you know tech stars programs and other accelerators and meeting with a lot of folks and, and trying to get involved as a mentor. And I would say that that's been a consistent thing for me. My uh, One of my favorite investors uh, was also our first investor. His name's Alex Iskold. Um, he was the uh, managing director for Techstars uh, in New York, their horizontal program for a variety of years, built some really fantastic companies out of that. Um, and uh, is now, uh, he's got his own fund, 2048. Um, ventures and he focuses on pre-seed, which is like the earliest oh, wow. risk. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we when he invested in us, we it was through the TechStars New York program, and I didn't have a product really. I didn't have any code. I was still kind of finding a technical co-founder. Um, no revenue. I had some customers who had were expressed some interest in what I was going to build. So it's as early as it possibly gets, and um, he took a bet and he said, "Sure." And he gave me a spot um, and and invested, and you know later down the road, you know I asked him why, and his answer was founder market fit. Like that's what he he focused on. How many you know cops are, are going to go out there and chase problems in this market um, that have some type of tech savvy and and, and know how there and and can put something together. And I that that kind of stuck with me 
And I think that's, that's really important, you know, and, and really, and I think like, if you're a repeat founder, you start to have a little, like, you know, business enough, you know how to get something going enough where you can have a little bit more leeway in terms of maybe right. not focusing on a problem that you, you, maybe you've experienced it and you understand it, but not something you've spent 10 years learning about, you know? Um, but yeah, no. So, so you asked about spider tech and you know, the, the story there is I, I was, Obviously, I was working as a police officer. Um, you know, before I was a, a, a cop, I'd spent like a time in public safety, but I'd also spent a lot of time in tech. Um, when I was a kid, 13, 14 years old, uh, my buddy and I were trying to build our first video game. Uh, it was uh, it was actually a mod for if any folks or gamers out there, it was a mod for something, a game called Half Life back in the day. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we were uh, we were trying to build a pirate game and we lied to people on the internet and said we're 25 when we we're actually 13, 14 old. So they would volunteer <laughs> to help us build the game because we didn't have any money. So we had like a staff of like eight to 10 people that eventually PC Gamer did a uh, like a little piece on uh, on the on the game um, and blew up that we were th like 14 years old. And uh, and then my parents like grounded me for it. They're like, no, <laughs> like you got to focus on grades like this is this is a distraction. And then when I was like 17, 18 years old, um, you know, I started again, I, I got back into it. I had a little startup that was in digital currency before Bitcoin was a thing. Um, and that kind of helped pay my way through college a little bit and, you know, get some spending money going on. Um, and then when I was uh, a paramedic, um, you know, I started working on an app that allowed, uh, you know, paramedics send EKGs directly from the field to uh, hospitals. This is in 2011. So this oh, is before wow, okay. apps like this would have been popular. This is 10 years ago. Um, so that we can cut down to the amount of time that it takes to treat people who are experiencing heart attacks. I can go straight to the, you know, cute facility where they need to, uh, to, you know, to be treated versus have to stop in the ER and do another EKG and that's valuable time. So, um, I, you know, I, 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 I experimented in the world a little bit. Um, and then in 2015, I, I, I left the police department in 2015. I, um, wanted to focus on helping law enforcement agencies utilize data in ways that are not just to try and catch the bad guy. You know, I grew up in a, in a, in a world where public perception, you know, in 2013, 2014, rapidly started to be a little bit more brutal when it came to police work. Right. Um, and some of it, I was like, yeah, I understand. I mean, I've, I've got my story for how I became a cop. I'm happy to get into it. And I've experienced, uh, you know, bad cops and racism with police too. So I, I understood that some of it I felt like was just a problem of of some le level of a lack of transparency, not being able to build trust individually, and we were losing trust over time. And so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help find ways to build that trust, improve that public perception, build that transparency uh, by leveraging data they're already gathering, so that you can kind of make this more accountable and transparent over time. Yeah, and I'll say that in looking at the story and studying what you and the team are doing. It's funny, we, it's a tough subject. Sometimes we talk about law enforcement. It's obviously the world. We're seeing a lot of, a lot of really difficult situations. We won't go deep into it just now. Uh, I know you can, which is actually because it's close to home. We'll, we'll talk about it. I'd like to dig in a bit. Sure. But you, some people would say your customer is the police service, but in fact, it's not. Your customer is the community. And... I'm curious how many people actually would get caught up on the idea that Rahul, I, I like you, you're a good person, but I I feel like you're serving the cops more than you're serving the people. Like, how do you do you find that perception? I'm just it's it's something that you know. I said I I know even when I explained that I've got family in policing and 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 you know a respect for it, people are like, oh, <laughs> like come on, there's 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 a lot. It's a complex issue right yeah yeah and that's, that's a good question um look it, i will say that there have been tensions especially since last june uh and i you know the way i see it they're essentially there are two types of folks out there they're the folks that just believe in you know, maybe abolishing the police the police don't need to exist we don't need the cops um and then there's everybody else and that everybody else is a spectrum that everybody else is like Hey, uh, I'm I'm not happy with the police. Of course, I believe that the cops need to exist, but here are all the things that are broken that need to be fixed, um, and I'm upset about that. All the way down to like people who are just, you know, pro police and might even be kind of blind to some of the problems that that are you know legitimate concerns uh, about the police. Uh, and that that's the vast majority are people in that second camp. There's not really much I can do about the first camp. Um, you know, if 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 
if you if you're there right now um and and you're thinking hey abolish the police that's yeah that's a different that's a different argument but with the second camp you know if you ultimately believe the police do need to exist even if you believe that there are plenty of problems which there are and you have ideas for solutions which are great because that's you know i think that's that's productive um then you have to assume that we need to help the police in doing what it is that we're asking them to do, whether it's, you know, massive reforms or, or, you know, better training, whatever the circumstances are, right. uh, we can't just expect the police to be able to do this by themselves without any, you know, assistance or influence from the outside world. Um, and I can say that because I, I was, you know, like having been in the police, there's way to get things done internally and there's things that need to get done externally too. So in that sense, I will clarify that, Technically, yeah, the customers are the police, but uh, in the sense that they're, you know, the city actually or the county that is paying the check and, right. and you know, giving us uh, uh, the funding, um, the end benefactors are, are going to be the community members um, because what the our product doesn't help necessarily. I, I'm not I'm not going to pretend like our product makes the community far safer or helps catch bad guys. Our product is designed to ensure that every police department can be a modern customer service agency. It's to ensure that. Uh, every, and I can get into it more specifically, but, uh, it, it, you know, every interaction between a police employee and the community member, uh, these community members have an, a, an ability to provide quick and rapid feedback, um, you know, where that feedback can be utilized to better optimize, uh, maybe find liabilities within the force or promote, you know, good actors, these kinds of things. And it's also designed so that every interaction you have with the police can become immediately transparent so that it's it's just like it would be interacting with Amazon or any other organization where you actually expect some level of transparency when you buy something, you know where your items are going to be, you know what's going to happen. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to instill this customer service concept into police departments through technology, uh, and you know without having them, you know, utilize more resources to make it happen. And one thing I've seen in the world of policing, you have folks that don't understand it. They don't know what it's like to be out there as a police officer. They might not even know what it's like to, to be out there as a victim of crime or, or to have ever, you know, right, they've got a lot right. of privilege. They, they've never experienced what it feels like to have to call 911 because you think you're going to die or something's going to happen. And you're hoping that someone can come and save you. And, um, and, you know, they again, they might not know what it's like. So when they sometimes folks will come up with solutions that uh, might seem impractical to to you know folks that have experienced these things, whether on the police side or as a crime victim or any of these things. and um, it's tough to then go to the police and sell those types of solutions to them. And if the, the police don't feel that you understand what it's like, you, you understand what is practical, what's impractical, um, or how to implement a solution for it to work, then you're probably not going to get their attention more than they're required to give you because you know they're going okay yeah sure we'll listen but we know that this particular thing isn't going to work so okay. when i you know when when i come in or when you know spider tech comes in we've got plenty of former officers uh, in the company as well um they're coming with experience hey look we want to help you with this police uh, community relationship building issue you have we want to help you with becoming more transparent we want to help you with because public perception is the most important currency for a police chief today it used to be like if you were to ask a police chief, you know, what metric, what success metric is most important to you 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they would have told you it's crime rates, crime rates going up, crime rates going down. That's the yeah. metric that matters today. They're going to tell you it's public perception. And unlike, you know, the last several decades, they've had technology processes in place, measuring and improving crime rates. They don't have that for public perception. So they're thirsting for a, a solution here, but they, they want to hear a solution from people who understand how to implement it and, and, and make it practical. And that's why when I say that the, the police departments are our customers, we are serving the departments so they can help better serve others. And that's the end benefactor. Right. Long explanation, but no, it's, it's perfect. And, and it's, it's important to give that context because the, and people have to remember too, when you're, if you're in, if you're a victim of crime, if you're a perpetrator of crime, or you're the officer that's, that's brought in to, you know, to deal with that crime, at the end of the transaction, no one wants to go back and rate the experience, right? It's not like mm -hmm. Amazon or Yelp. Like, there's so many things that we do every day in our life where we we believe we can affect the outcome because you can rate it up, rate it down, do all these things. And then there's, but in that transaction, everybody wants to get away from having experienced the transaction. So it's really hard for anybody involved in that situation to think at the aggregate. And this is why data is so 
fundamentally necessary for this stuff. Because right. and this is, but it takes an outside mind to understand. Because in your, if you're one of those three or whatever the number of participants in that transaction, I'll say, it's they they are just trying to get through the transaction. They're trying to save a life, you know, do what whatever it's going to be, and just get through that moment, and then you know, hopefully reduce the amount of time till the next moment, you know, the next transaction. So, but as, and I say it as transaction because that's how we have to think of it. I know there's a very personalized thing. It's a diff, like, I'm not minimizing what they're going through, but that's why now you take this data and you have this outside mind come in, then you can look at the aggregate of this data and you can give this transparency through the process with people. It's going to increase their confidence in the process. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Um, Like the, the data that we provide. So maybe I should give a little bit more context so that your audience understands what it is that yeah, Spyfic yeah. does. So when when you buy something, when was the last time you bought something online, Eric? About an hour ago. <laughs> What'd you buy? Uh, I believe it was actually bacon. Uh, I've ordered bacon through Whole Foods through the internet. That's a bit of an odd thing, but uh, hey, so my internet bacon the, may not be the best transaction to measure here, but uh, that's that was my last purchase. It was an Amazon purchase through Whole Foods. So okay, so and when you bought that from Amazon, you could probably within thirty seconds plot your phone. Just check the status of your order, know exactly how much you paid, know when your you know item is going to be shipped. I would agree, right? I mean, that, that's that's Precisely. what you think. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that is the type, that is what the modern consumer comes to expect from interacting with any type of, you know, anytime they have a transaction with an organization, whether it's private sector or public sector, that's now the the standard of customer service that they expect. So we built a, a system uh, that replicates that exact type of service for police departments. Um, we're also live now with fire departments and, and, you know, courts, et cetera, but police departments are in Los Angeles, sorry, law enforcement agencies are, are, um, our main, you know, our, our basically our bread and butter there. And for, for them, what it looks like is when you call nine one one and you hang up the phone as an I one call, you're going to get an immediate text message saying, here's your now one call number. Here's, uh, you know, what to expect. Uh, you'll get a message saying, hey, look, you know, maybe there's a delay. We apologize for delay. You'll get messages allowing you to fill out a report on the phone if you don't want to wait. Uh, when the officer comes and goes, they submit the report into the, um, you know, to their system. You'll get another message. Hey, here's your report number. Here's what you need to send to your insurance company. Here's what's going to happen with detectives. And then you'll continuously get messages. Hey, a detective has been assigned or a case has been closed or an arrest has been made. Those are the types of messages you get, just like you would if you're ordering bacon from Amazon, you're going to get messages along the way. Yeah. And that type of transparency helps you feel comfortable that like you trust the process. Something is actually happening for you. But the other side of this is the fact that we're also sending mobile friendly surveys throughout this entire process. Whether you're now one call, you're a crime victim, or even outside of that environment. Maybe you're, you know, we're just now starting to do it outside of, 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 you know, direct calls and going into things like traffic stops, et cetera, yeah. where you can basically fill out a survey that uh, lets you rate that interaction. And, and and if you have comments or concerns or compliments or whatever, you can put that in that survey. And that allows for these departments to, when they measure every interaction, it makes it, makes it so less things fall through the cracks. You can quickly identify where your liabilities are. When that data comes in an aggregate, you'll know which officers are out there providing the best service, which ones you might want to remediate or train, or you know, there's potential disciplinary issues involved. You'll also know which ones are going out there and 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 doing such a good job that that they should be promoted in some capacity. Yeah. Um, and this is interesting because that's what it means to be a modern police officer. You know, the if the only data you can measure for officers, which is still currently uh the majority of agencies across the country is how many citations an officer wrote, how many arrests they made, how many stops they've made. All this enforcement data is the only data being gathered. That's the kind of officer you're going to end up getting if that's the data that you're holding them to. Once you start adding in customer service scores or or positive interactions as data points and you're rewarding them for that and they have that positive lo- uh, feedback loop in, then you're going to start moving officers towards more of a modern officer mindset. And this is one of the reasons that we, we've got over 50 different agencies, uh, not just in the US, but also in Canada. And we've had zero union issues so far um, because unions find this to be useful. Is If, if you're t- asking officers to stop doing you know, these enforcement actions and, and start being a little bit more careful about how they proceed, which is great, um, you have to find a way to be able to reward them through data for be- doing a good job. And this is one of those things. 
So ultimately that data in aggregate is super useful. If I, if uh, not just from a, um, from a customer service standpoint, of course, that's useful in aggregate. Every couple of weeks, I can go in and say how how one shift is doing or how one part of the city is doing. Yeah. But it's also um, for the pur purpose of resource allocation. Because if I'm asking these surveys, hey, what is most important to you in your neighborhood? Which of these items do you want us to worry, you know, uh, uh, focus on in, in terms of helping you? Um, trying to get a sense of what, what neighborhoods feel like they're over-policed, which ones feel like they're under-policed, um, which ones feel like they, they have a larger issue with burglary or drugs or gangs and which ones feel like their issues with traffic. Now, once I have a pulse on my neighborhoods and my community, I can better allocate resources to respond to their concerns versus essentially just kind of playing in the dark and trying to figure out, hey, you know, how do I allocate these resources? And that actually compounds because if I'm a police chief and I have to go to city council and ask for money because I need to solve a certain problem, and I, I come in armed with large data sets to show that the community's got my back in your district and your district and your district city councilman and city councilwoman, then it's much easier for me to walk out of that meeting with the funding I need uh, versus relying on potentially anecdotal stories and and you know one or two people that show up to the city council meeting to support my case. So all of this data ends up being useful, not just every day, but in these larger formats. Yeah, and, and this is the, it's the interesting thing, right? Because it creates that accountability loop as well as a feedback loop. Like it's one thing if if it's just, uh, hey, how, you know, 1-800, how's my driving? But it's not just going to the driver, it's going to the driver's agency. And it allows them to, you know, move behavior towards a greater outcome. Even if it's a right. gentle nudge, a little here and there. Again, like you said, at the aggregate, this creates a belief that we can affect the outcome as uh, somebody who's participating in the process. And and just the fact, like, it goes through my mind. I've had to call for an ambulance before. I've had to call for, for fire and for police. I've been right. on the other side of the radio for those things. Those 15 minutes are the longest, most challenging. It feels like an eternity to somebody who's waiting for that reaction any interaction you have is something. And then once they're done, once they leave the property, then you're thinking, what's going on with my case? What's where, you know, and so just the fact that you can get regular updates, like you said, it's, we expect it for our bacon. Why couldn't we? I shouldn't use yeah. a bacon, bacon reference. That was a very, very poor choice of product that I had to <laughs> attach to this one. So <laughs> some people may say it's a little more appropriate, but um. Like whatever it is, the fact that we know we're going to be kept in touch with the state of this situation, mm -hmm. a huge lift to people's belief in the system. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's about, you know, when people under, like when they, they know what to expect, when they understand what is happening, they feel a lot better about the services. We did an AB test in, in the beginning when we launched in Tucson police uh, in Arizona, second largest city out there. And um, in the beginning, this is years ago, all we did was send the, you know, group A, which is 50% of the crime victims. We sent them a simply like a receipt for service. One acknowledgement message when the report was filed saying, hey, here's what we're going to be doing for you. Yeah. And then group B, we didn't send them anything. We didn't send them that message. We did send the same survey to both groups. And we found that folks in group A indicated they're 43% less likely to call Tucson PD and ask more questions uh, about what was going on. You know, ask for more information. Um, we found that they had higher scores when it came to questions like, do you trust the Tucson Police Department? Are you happy with the services provided? This is, it sounds like a no-brainer, but we quantified this feeling to make sure that we understood, like we were just making an assumption, this is truly how people are. And e-commerce, they did this on purpose. Like this isn't something that they just decided to do out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, I'm right. sure <laughs> you and I are probably both old enough to remember what it felt like, uh, you know, when people started buying things on the internet for the first time in the late nineties, you know, and, and that was like, no, I also remember my mom was like, I'm never going to buy anything on the internet. You know, I, I don't trust it. I'm not going to put my credit card information on there. In the beginning, when these e-commerce companies were starting, one of the things they did to build trust was start sending the order confirmation email or something, at least on the screen that said, write down this order confirmation number. Right. It's a totally bullshit number. They, yeah. they make it up out of nowhere, but it gave people this feeling like, oh, something is confirmed. Yeah. And that by itself was a big deal. But then the second thing they did with these, these order confirmations was start setting expectations. 
people are okay if something takes a little bit longer if they if they know how long it's going to take and when it's going to show up. If I know my item is going to be delivered on Wednesday or likely to be delivered on Wednesday, I'm probably not going to call on Tuesday and ask where my item is. Right. But if I don't know when to expect it, my likelihood of calling on Tuesday to ask questions is much higher. And so e-commerce kind of figure this out and they just combine this setting expectations. Here's your expected item delivery date, but don't hold us to it. That's good enough. And an order confirmation number, which slowly started turning into click here to track your order, which slowly started turning into additional notifications. But it started right. with that. And those are the lessons that we try to incorporate with, with things like this as well. And like you said, it's not by accident. This is, th there's a reason, like we call it a receipt. It was a physical, you know, reference. It was an acknowledgement of the receipt of goods in exchange for something else. And right. I'm sure, I mean, my mom used to keep receipts for bananas. I'm like, mom, you're never going to return the bananas. Why do you need <laughs> a receipt for the banana? But it was, it was a transaction. And you know what it was? It was an alibi. You never know right. when you need the alibi. That receipt's going to come in handy. You walk into the next door, they're like, where'd you get that banana, kid? <laughs> I got my receipt here. <laughs> That's right. I was at the banana store at 1.46 p.m. on Thursday, officer. There's no way I could have committed that murder. That's that's the way I would have looked at. Well, and you look at the you look at the situation with like where we are digitally in this world. It should be it's a natural expectation that everything should have some way in which we can do this, but it's not the case. It's not the case, right. especially at large. We I've had a few folks on as well that are specifically targeting like um, you know civil processes in government and tackling this through startups because internally they're just trying to get budget for the next four years or whatever their budget cycle and their their government cycle is because they're constantly in flux of who's the counselor who's gonna you know all these competing priorities it's not like a it's not like a business where you're like okay here's how much revenue we have this is how we can spend it yeah. cities and towns have fundamentally different cycles by which they manage budgets right and processes and different motivations entirely yeah and so why wouldn't so they we expect them to be like leaning in digital but they need help yeah and this is what's important yeah and you know like when when cities and you know counties they, they make decisions to buy spider tech or any type of technology that's going to improve you know perception at least for us i can say that obviously some of it's political hey like this is about reform this is about helping the departments become more accountable and transparent providing better services to the community members that sounds already like a great use of tax dollars but there's a fundamental cost savings with what we do like i right. said when people aren't calling and asking questions when you're lowering lowering complaints and ultimately the the best cost savings is when you were able to to circumnavigate or at least um you know avoid having massive issues or problems because you were able to identify liabilities before they became too big you know these are the types of things that will end up saving a city or a county a lot of money whether it's through litigation or it's just through the simple you know decrease in costs and in 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 the services they provide i'll give you an example uh you know we've got um I can't really say the name of an agency, a large agency in California uh, yeah. that we just booked and we haven't deployed yet. So we have to wait for the press release to come out. But uh, one of the things they do is if an officer is not, you know, if, they, if there's a, uh, an officer's marked themselves or let's say okay, now one call has come in and an officer's not marked themselves on scene yet for about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, I think the actual cutoff is 20 minutes. A dispatcher will pick up the phone, call the 911 call or apologize for delay, say, hey, we're going to get to you as quickly as we can. We've got this emergency call volume that we're having to deal with. We don't yeah. have enough officers, so we're doing the best we can. Um, if it, which is first of all terrible scenario, you know some of these departments are just dealing with with not enough resources to be able to go to these calls. But in that circumstance, the dispatcher now has to spend time making that phone call. Now the officer, you know, has to go. Eventually goes and, and deals with the call, et cetera, which is great. Now. Think about this. What we're doing instead is through spider tech, it'll automatically automatically send a text when it hits the 20 minute trigger that says, hey, we apologize for delay. Um, if you'd like to switch to an online report, if it's not a, like an ongoing crime in progress, it's just a it's a it's a crime report. Yeah. We can do this for you right there on the phone. You click the link and you can fill out the report on your phone. Some people really prefer that they're on the go. They'd rather do that than wait for an officer. Just by doing that, you're now you're taking one uh, call out of the queue and making it faster for the officer to get to the next one. But uh, I can tell you right now, I've driven across the city 
to get to an hour one call to get to a hit and run, for example, only to find out that the person waited for about 15, 20 minutes, you know, and I feel bad about that. Um, nothing I could have done, but when I get there, they're gone. They, right. they, they left. There, there was no button they could have clicked that said, Hey, I'm no longer on scene. Never mind. I cancel. And now my response time to the next call is going to take an extra 20 minutes. And you know, that starts compounding over time. So just by sending that one text, you're not only reducing the amount of time and effort and cost into going into like, you know, picking up the phone every five minutes and making apology calls as a dispatcher, but you're also increasing the efficiency of the patrol operations themselves. Oh, totally. What well, even just that scenario you talked about, it's a very real and obviously, you know, it's a difficult situation because the fact is you have traffic, you've got fit, like it's tough when you're on the receiving, when you're, it could be a hit and run, could be as simple as, you know, I scraped up my bicycle or somebody, you know, gave me a bump. It could obviously could be much more serious, but that was probably a case for somebody did have a situation happen. They said, all right, I'm not going to wait around for this. I'm going to tap out, but it actually, so they've got, they're dissatisfied with the whole service. They've, they've now built an opinion based on previous experience that's making them less likely to report future incidents. Right. The second piece is all the way out there, you got dispatch calling you going, Row, what's your 20? <laughs> yeah. Like over and over again, you're like, I'm trying to get there. Uh, you know, I'm caught at fifth yeah. and fine. I can't get out. You know, we got to, it's like, so everybody's doing stuff, which is unnecessary, which should be unnecessary. And then right. even worse, we've created a pattern for future for that victim where they are less likely to now involve the police in what could be a more serious situation. Sure. And, and it's, I mean, this is pattern development, right? And this is why, like you said, perception is about obviously the broad awareness of a belief in how a system behaves. Right. And I tell you, in, in when you're the person who's gone through that thing with, with the system, you know, it's when the, when the paramedic arrives, there's two people that you thank, and that's the man above and the man in the ambulance. That's right. you, you're not sure which order you go in, but you know, you're, and you're praying to both of them all the way to the hospital yeah. because you are clinging to hope. And when you get on the other side of that, you are thankful. And the fact that you can interact with that situation, the fact that it, while you're in the wait period, you can interact. The fact that you just said just this accountability, the feeling that you are fully aware of the situation because that's it, right? The other thing somebody calls dispatch like i've felt this firsthand right i'm like literally in a police station for many many months and you know dispatch takes a call where things down like i'm an old school literally came down where they would write it on a physical memo pad and like put it on the on the thing put it on mm -hmm. their clipboard on their desk they're writing physical notes in their book right like we we know they bring in the notebook you when you're going to court you're going through you're leafing through your notebook filling out your reports to be able to pull this in and say, okay, here's the transaction flow that happened. We, we're, we're pulling it from, from the system. And it's like, here's when the call came in. Like, it takes the opinion out of it. Yeah. Which is fantastic because then it's not like, well, I'm pretty sure it was like a quarter after, like you said, you're, you're on the way to the scene. Yeah. You can't be pulling out your notebook. <laughs> sure. It, it's uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ex I'm really excited. Like I said, when I saw what what you're doing, uh, it's it's something that I hope can help to really really grow the confidence in what these people are doing for communities. And then yeah, look, I, I, make, it make it better all around. Yeah, and and you know, for us, it's like, change is inev inevitable. Like we we view that the the idea of bringing modern customer service to not just policing, but all of government is an right. inevitability, you know, like how long is government uh, not going to be able to provide a level of customer service that Amazon provided in 2003, right? How long right. can they get away with that? It's it just, it's, it's going to any type of, of government organization that has some type of transactional responsibility with their constituents, whether you're going to buy permits from, uh, from your local, you know, city hall or your, your, you know, it's a police officer that you're talking to, or you're going to the DMV. I mean, at some point, these services are going to have to catch up. You're going to have to have this government 2.0 that catches up with the rest of the world. And I'll see certain government organizations in certain states or certain cities. They're way further ahead. But overall, as an industry, 
uh, GovTech, you know, or at least government is way behind. And so that inevitability, I think, essentially drives this, even if we weren't in the zeitgeist uh, in history where, you know, police reform is, is so important. It has so much momentum. I still think it would be an inevitability that that ultimately this type of service enhancement would come to to policing itself. If you could get the DMV in New Jersey to take on spider tech as a client, I'd be, <laughs> I would personally pay a chunk of that bill because let me, I went through, there was the whole, like, I, I'm, I'm a recent, uh, recent, uh, immigrant to the United States and sure. going through the process of like getting my driver's license. It's like a whole flow of things. And it's exactly that, right? I, I'm in tech, so I'm just horrified by the situation. I've got to go and set an appointment, especially it's during COVID. Things are extra sure. weird, right? So I got to go there. I got to set my appointment. I make the call, yeah, you know, and then they won't take your call. So you got to do it online. I'm like, oh, good. At least it's still online. It's online and it takes four weeks to get an appointment. Like, dear goodness. Okay, so it's four weeks. I get my appointment. I go in and then I go through the whole thing. They said, perfect. You're all good. Here's 17 pieces of paper, ID, all this craziness that I do, which God bless them. I got to get it done. And then they say, now you have to set an appointment for your knowledge test, which I'm like, okay, fair enough. Like, perfect. Let's do that. And they're like, yeah. no, you have to go online and do that. I'm like, well, you're halfway home. At least it's an online <laughs> system. But shouldn't this transaction trigger the next part of the transaction? And they're like, no, it's a different system that's so, you know, another four well, weeks it, to get the next thing. <laughs> and that's the thing, like we were talking about earlier, government's just motivated differently. You know, like yeah. the, the folks that, that we're dealing with on a, a day-to-day basis, that, you know, so I, don't get me wrong, some of them are really great people, but they're just not motivated the same way. Um, right. and, and the folks at the top are also not motivated the same way. It's not like we can choose to give our taxes to a different government. Um, you know, right. There's or, not you know, a lot of competition. <laughs> there's no competition. It's just uh, you owe us this or you're going to jail and the services we provide you or the services we provide you. There's some checks and balances. Of course, we can elect folks you know, that we think are going to be better about this, but no one's ever run on a campaign successfully on, on I'm going to make it so it's less of a pain in the ass to go to the DMV. Um, there's so many bigger issues out there and there's it is somewhat of a zero-sum game, um, you know, or at least it should be when it comes to, to government funding. But um, on the other side of it, you know, people only like it, it would feel silly to, to, to push that as an issue during the elections process. So ultimately what we have is what we get, uh, you know, from, from, you know, how they like to sell something to government, you have to not only show that it'll be a better service. You have to show that it will be, it'll save them money or it'll be easier for their employees. That's right. the only, those, and the save them money thing only really matters to the, the folks at the top. Who have other projects they you know with good intentions they want to do but they need to find funding for it they want to make their things more efficient especially if they're appointed officials and they want to show the elected officials who appointed them that they're doing a good job on the finance side and they've made some blanket improvements but um not enough of it's based off of what the private sector would think and the private sector like the free market in that context has a has an outstanding lever for motivation it, it's if we don't give our customers a good enough experience and a good enough product, they will go elsewhere. Yeah. And so they're naturally and intrinsically motivated to always do a better job. But we don't have that in government. This is one of those things where, uh, you know, I, I talk about the free market. Have, it's, it's, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not as great. But this is one of those things that it's just so much better than government at. It's just constantly having to improve because it's feeder to the fire at all times. And it really, this is always the tough part too. And even, you know, obviously police reform, a real challenging topic to have a open discussion about but anything it's like yeah government small government big government it's not a like you're gonna pick one or the other it's like we can have beautiful hybrids where you can have some free market system some places where they can look to transform how they run the business and then as a result it would you know maybe spur other things to happen and other stuff where of course we can't be entirely free market in the we there's we've got protections built in for for very good reasons you know and it's a weird balance i've i've always sort of been this weird love and because it's it's captivating to watch the processes they got to go through even when you watch yeah. like c-span 
it's like uh, uh i welcome the gentle lady from uh, wisconsin you know and, and thank you i thank you for your time to the gentle uh, gentleman from wisconsin you know like all this little stuff and i yield back my time like can't we just sit down and maybe <laughs> let's have a round table discussion on how but bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake yeah oh, you know and and like you said the they those if those officials who are being elected have different mandates than the folks that are running the agencies that are appointed to them that then mm -hmm. different than the employees of the agencies it's a it's a tough world but we're getting there i mean i think i think the world is finally putting enough inward pressure to the government systems and they're learning and we're seeing some regional stuff work specific agency by agency they're adapting and, and i think that it's good it'll kind of a bit of a network effect hopefully should come as a result of like what you and the team are doing on especially on this side yeah yeah i i think like i said i do think it's an inevitability i think it, you know companies like spider tech are pushing in one direction you've got other great companies in GovTech that are pushing in other directions to just kind of modernize the process i think naturally though as a culture um you know there are uh, i'd say pros and cons into the direction that government and politics are going um you could say the cons are very similar to the movie idiocracy uh, where you know our attention spans are getting shorter and and we're you know we're starting to react to things very emotionally and we're taking a lot of critical thinking out of the the you know the way that we do things but the pros are um you know we're also the government's feeder to the fire for to ensure that they're more accessible to everybody they're more transparent um the services they provide are are more easily utilized and potentially um you know more cost effective in a variety of ways um and they're because they're they're having to compete like i said with with a with the private sector in the modern world at least in the in the idea at least mentally they have to compete yeah, with people yeah. you know they and so um I think th that aspect of government's already kind of happening, uh, and, and it's actually interesting because you can you can see that happening um, with elected officials and the way that they interact with us. Uh, it's always it's tough to even mention like elected officials in Twitter because you know the first <laughs> thing you, had, you know like uh, yeah. the, the guy who brought Twitter to to politics is no longer on Twitter, but um, but but it's you know what the one thing that is staying is the idea that politicians are spending more time on modern forms of communication, like social media, like jumping on podcasts, like interacting with people in ways that they're now used to absorbing information versus the old way of doing it, which was you only really hear from folks every once in a while in a press conference. You got to watch C-SPAN the way that you're talking about it. Yeah. Maybe show up at a town hall. And before that, the politicians like either purposely try to hide from everybody um, and spend less time in the public uh, or um, they just wouldn't be good at, at communicating with folks in mass. And now we have uh, just the same way. People can get their message out very quickly and very directly through social media. Um, government officials, both appointed and elected, can can communicate in ways that are much faster. Some of that is also accelerated by technology. Um, you know, they're like companies like Everbridge, for example, that, uh, you know, we worked with a little bit, uh, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic where we were trying to help, uh, you know, police departments and fire departments send out notifications, you know, and, and get signed up for Everbridge alerts and, and, uh, you know, notifications so they can stay in the loop and, and communicate with their city council and, you know, a variety of other things. The technology has a, obviously a role to play and has accelerated the process, but generations that are younger and younger have no attention span yeah. <laughs> or, or desire to sit through bureaucracy or the patience for the process. Some ways it's great in some ways it's not, but Generally speaking, it's pushing us in that direction, one way or the other. Yeah, when it and this is the, this is the thing. Like I, I do like that it, it's the, it's not an easy life to choose the public life, right. But the accountability is much stronger now, I believe, than it has been in decades past, where you could be very disconnected from. You, know, you can get in. And I mean, like you look at some of these elected officials and they're in like a Pope and there's no, uh, they're, they're going out in a box and, you know, it's for whatever reason, you know, it's hard as a citizen sometimes to even feel like you can move the needle. So often people don't believe they can, so they don't. And it's this weird sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that we don't participate in civic processes as much as we should because of a lack of belief. But now through different medium and different technologies, we can really see the effect we can have. and like to interact and I, I said it's just it's a an accountability that gets created 
that I believe will, it will be a standard in another decade that we will look back on going, wait a second. You mean you used to have to phone like on a telephone to get in touch with somebody like that's craziness. Yeah. But yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's actually fun to think about what, what in 30 years are we going to look back at like a thing that we did government or not on a daily basis that we're like, I can't believe we used to do that, that, that we, we just aren't expecting for that to be a thing. Yeah. It's so it's interesting too. And your choice, you have to be very motivated to the greater good as a founder, as a civic servant. And especially in this case, I'm going to say, you walked into one of the most challenging areas as a founder. Not only are you creating software, which is tough to sell in general. Let's just say even if you put everybody in a level playing field, being a founder of a, of a startup, not an easy job. The percentage of failures are far greater than the percentage of successes. But you know from your own experiences of being on the other side of this, these systems, you're walking into one of the longest, most difficult sales cycles ever. So yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. When well, did you when you I that the bacon sale seems a lot easier to transact on than this? So you must have been very motivated then in being able to have this positive effect that made you choose to build towards this goal. Yeah, look, I, I think it's a, you know, GovTech is tough because of the sales cycles. The federal side is even tougher. Local government, um, I have found there are ways that you can get them to have like sales cycles and ACVs that are close to like successful B2B SaaS companies. And if you can replicate those models, then you are very successful in that environment. Um, I've, I've mentored a lot of GovTech companies. I would, I would say that, you know, I personally invest in a small chunk of them and that small chunk all shares uh, in common that they sell to local government and they're able to replicate the same metrics. Um, you know, I would say our, I'll tell you right now, our sales cycles are about 170 days on average, yeah. uh, which is just less than six months. So it's definitely longer, but, uh, you know, we have contracts that are almost a million dollars a year, um, like 40 K a year. So the contract sizes are obviously larger and they're multi-year contracts. The average contract length for us is three years. Right. Um, so, you know, we end up selling, you know, it takes time, but we end up selling, uh, in a way that makes the unit economics work for sure. Um, you know, industries like this are difficult to crack and you've got some VCs that focus purely on like very sexy, very established, very, I wouldn't say easy, but, um, like predictable markets. Uh, yeah. and they would, some VCs would rather go for a new version of something that already exists in a somewhat saturated market because it's predictable. They know that, Hey, if we dump X, Y, Z into this, this playbook has been rewritten 10 times. Like we'll, we'll be able to make it work. Some VCs are looking for those unsexy opportunities where they're looking at industries that are potentially intimidating, that might have longer sales cycles that might not have a lot of, you know, political tailwinds behind whatever the circumstances are. They're looking for those environments. And then they're trying to find companies that they believe can succeed despite the challenges there, because they will, you know, if it's a true greenfield opportunity, then you just bet on somebody that can absorb that greenfield. And then when they get to a phase for scale, then you can start putting money into that company for scale. And, um, you know, I'm grateful to all of our investors because they had to be patient in the beginning. It took time to crack this. It was yeah. a couple of years uh, just to get um, to a point where we were, you know, getting some solid traction with paid customers. Um, you know, we had a lot of integrations we had to get through uh, on the technical side. It took us some time. We pivoted a couple of times on the product side to get to where we wanted to get to. I mean, I started the company in 2015. 2017, uh, we had our first paying customer towards the end. Um, and 2018, uh, 2019, we started seeing, okay, 4X, 5X, 4X, 5X year over year. We had a little over 5X last year, uh, became profitable last year, but it took time oh, to get to, Thank you. Yeah, it took time to where we needed to go. And once we figured out the market and what worked for us, we were able to feel fa fairly comfortable with our ACVs, with you know uh, our sales cycles and how to repeat the process. A repeatable, predictable process that might take longer is worth a lot more than the inverse. Um, and for us as a more established company now, that's like, that's the end goal is a repeatable process that we can find ways to invest and tweak to make better. And I know you've got very deep personal experience now in reassessing the M and the V in an MVP. So I'd love mm -hmm. to actually hear 
you know, in hindsight, oh, yeah. looking back on how long you took to take that, to go to market with that first push. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, you, there are a lot of ways to build humility and my favorite way is failing. Big <laughs> <laughs> skull. Um, you know, I would say what people have always heard the lean startup way, right. Is, uh, if you want to build a car, you build like a skateboard and then a bicycle, then a motorcycle, you eventually get there. Yeah. Um, I knew that I read the book, you know, I, I spent time talking to people and I got the advice and I still didn't listen to it. I still thought to myself, no, I need to make it more feature rich. Like the draw and like the, the desire to go into market with something that you're like, no, I need to make it so that I, I'm going to take a big bet, spend X amount of money building a product without really going piece by piece on it to understand what sticks and, and doing the legwork on the product side. Um, that was the mistake that we made uh, more than once, actually. I mean, I, I, it wasn't until I was, I raised a $1 million pre-seed round and I ate up over half of that. And I'm like, we're going to run out of money and we're not like, this product is now too big to be able to deploy fast enough yeah. to be able to make, you know, make it work with the runway we have. And I remember I, I, um, one of my advisors was the chief, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, uh, police chief of police there, really good guy. Um, Burlington's where, where Bernie Sanders was the mayor. That's yeah, the, that's you right. know, I, I flew out to him, uh, to him to talk and spend some time with him. One of my co-founders and I, we were on his boat, you know, on the lake, beautiful scene, having a couple of beers and we we're trying to figure out what to do. And we kind of got down to, well, what are things that are like really important right now? Like what, 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 what are chiefs trying to solve? They can't solve. We already kind of had an understanding of what that was, but then he started pitching in a different way that started to click. And then eventually it was just do one small thing. Just start with one small thing that you think would be useful. Cut down staff if you need to and do that one thing. And that one thing for us is like, what if we just sent a, an acknowledgement message? You know, once we started diving into e-commerce, an acknowledgement message when a report was filed that just gives people more information. And we went to busy agencies that, uh, that in which that it would have the greatest impact. Something like that would have the greatest, greatest impact. So I went, I kind of clicked for me and I went back to the company, uh, to the office, uh, flew back and like literally didn't even stop. I had my bags, uh, <laughs> and I, I drove to the office and I went to the engineers and said, Hey, you're back. And I like erased the blackboard we had. And I said, okay, this is going to be the last time I, I say we pivot. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> and they're like, uh Oh, and they're already like, here we go. And I said, this is the, we're just going to do one thing. We're going to do this one thing. Um, and we built that out in 30 days, just like the very MVP of that in 30 days. And, uh, my partner and I called up a, a police chief that we had, you know, grabbed a drink with at a, a conference and hit it, hit it off with. And he said, you know what, come on down, show me what you got. We went, uh, you know, showed him what, what we were doing. And he said, sure. Like that was it. There was no, it was just a handshake yeah. deal. Sure. And then we were up and running in a couple months and that became the first feature of now a full fledged automated customer service platform. But it took time to learn those lessons. It's well, especially you don't have history and anecdotal experience and data to bring you to like this is a classic first. I mean, you had done other stuff in the past, obviously, but like first funded founder. Yeah, totally. It's a it's a completely natural thing, and it is so hard to spot it while you're in the throes of it. Because you're thinking, I'm the one that's going to pitch this thing and I'm going to walk into the room and say, I'm going to send an SMS message to people that acknowledges that they've got the report. And you're thinking yeah. to yourself in your own head, they could just sign up for Twilio and get that. <laughs> and so the first thing you're thinking is I've got to add more value. I've got to make this like you're, yeah. you have the natural thought of any founder, builder, you're like, I've got to make this more attractive so that I can bring value. So hard to look back. And it's in a weird way. I mean, it's always a, as they, they talk about the the experiencing self and the remembering self, as they talk about in thinking fast and slow. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman talked about this. It's very tough to assess that. And in a way, though you would you though you know you could have done that earlier there were a lot of things that probably happened for a reason that will also shape how you approach next generations next features because you if you hadn't bloated the first version and i i bloat not a good word but if you hadn't sort of overloaded the mvp at the beginning right. 
you would have just gotten the MVP potentially, not even realizing that you had done the lean startup right. And then you would have bloated version 2.0. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, you got to learn the lesson at some point. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, what I, I think the advice that was given to me that is definitely the one piece of advice that I give uh, new founders now all the time. It wasn't even given to me by um, like a CEO of a company. It was, it was, uh, it was given to me by a, in a UX instructor that I had uh, when I took a UX class back in the day. And that was fall in love with a problem, but never the solution. <laughs> and it stuck yeah. to me, like, you know, approaching any problem now, not just like, we're not just something that startups, like any problem in life, like you can obsess over a problem. The moment you start obsessing over a solution, you you've taken yourself off the train and you're, you're, you're going down a different path uh, because the solution you have to be, you know, how do I put it? Uh, intellectually honest, you know, at times what, you know, what you don't know, and you have to be humble enough to be able to be wrong and falling in love with the problem will allow you to do that. Falling in love with the solution means no, this is the solution. And when I talk to folks in the context of policing, uh, with like defunding the police or abolishing the police, it often feels like we've both fallen in love with the problem, but one of us has fallen in love with a solution. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I, it makes it difficult. And when I hire folks at spider tech, I make sure they have that idea that, that the problem is what's important. Um, and the solution can change and you have to be okay with that. You can't be too attached to one idea. You're not gonna let yourself be, uh, solve the problem then. Yeah, there's a neat uh, phrase that people talk about in, in good product management is the ability to be ruthlessly pragmatic. And it, right. it is just that, you know, and, and it was the famed Einstein thing. He says, if I was given an hour to solve a problem, I would spend 55 minutes on the problem. Yeah. Because that's, you know, but it's very tough. Like we immediately want to go to the sexy solution and right. and make that the thing. So now those are good lessons. And and also bravo to you for, for mentoring and giving back I, again, that sort of that beautiful civic minded responsibility will pay forward in many ways with other founders and other folks that will learn from your lessons. And, and with that, thank you as well, Rahul, for thinking taking the time with us today. This has been really great. I could go, I could go much longer for sure and dig in on, on some of the startup stuff. Cause in fact, I'd actually love to catch up again down the road. Sure. Some more of those press releases are out and, and just those founders lessons are super important. And a lot of first time founders, they struggle with going, finding places to go to get them. And I've right. actually gotten a lot of folks who, you know, through listening to the podcast, they're like, I learn like, the third time I listen to your podcast, I realized I was hearing the same things repeatedly. And it was like MVP is definitely one that, but even though we hear it, yeah, I, you know, we got to teach people how to spot it. But uh, right. Well, look, I, thank you for having me. I come back anytime. Yeah. And for folks, if they want to reach out to you and find out more, get connected, what's the best way to do that? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's R A H O O L S I D O O, or I'm sure you'll, you'll post it in the description there. Yeah. Um, or you can go to the website, spider tech, S P I D R. There's no E T E C H.com and uh, check out the company. Nice. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Eric.